Welcome to One Chapel. We're a family of neighborhood churches in the Austin area. Our vision is to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. It's a place to connect, grow, and serve the communities where we live. You can learn more about One Chapel and how to get involved at onechapel.com. And now, here's this week's message. So I want you to think back to a time when maybe you felt like you didn't belong. Think back to a time where you felt like you were on the outside of everything else. For many of you, it's probably back in middle school. You know, you're, 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 you're walking into the cafeteria and you've got that lunch tray and you don't know where to sit and you feel like you don't belong. Why? Because junior high kids are so strange. I love them so much. They're so wonderful, but it's a weird time of life. Can we all just pause for a moment and thank God that we're not in middle school anymore? If you're in middle school, we love you. It's going to get better. Maybe it was when you were in high school and you felt like you didn't, you didn't belong to the right group that you should have belonged to. For me, I spent a little time in my freshman year of high school in Canada. My dad moved to Canada, and so I moved up there, and, and my dad, he, he took me and he, he put me in this Canadian school. And I got to tell you, I just felt like I do not belong here. These people are weird. Like, they're just crazy. Somebody said, yeah, yeah. yeah. These people are different than me. I mean, I, I'm not sure that I should even be here. They say weird stuff. Like, they actually say tacos. Like, you want a taco? No, they want tacos. What is a taco? I literally heard somebody say, hey, could we run out and get some nachos? Nachos. Is that me? Is that me? Hello. Hi. Nachos. Actually, I heard one woman say, oh, we had a lovely day at the spa. The spa. And so I'm thinking, I don't understand how you talk. Every sentence ends in A, and it's just a weird place to be. I felt like I did not belong. In fact, in that school, every morning, they had us recite the Canadian Pledge of Allegiance. And I refused to say it. Why? Because my allegiance is to the red, white, and blue. Actually, my allegiance is to Texas. Actually, my allegiance is to Jesus. Listen, make, no, make, make no mistake about that. But, but I just felt like I didn't belong. Today, I want to talk to you about a story where a woman broke into a scene where she didn't belong. And I want you to see what Jesus did with her. Most of you know that we're in this series at the table, and, and we've been camping out on this verse, Luke chapter 7, verse 34. It says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here's a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. For most of us, this kind of goes over our heads, right? We don't think too much about it. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, eating and drinking, of course he did. I mean, he was fully God. He was fully man. He was there. He had to have some sustenance to live, right? So what does that have to do with anything? Why is this even noteworthy? Why are we highlighting this scripture? And one of the reasons that it doesn't impact us very much is because meals meant way more in the time of Jesus than they do today. We kind of lost sight of the, the power and the impact that they can have because we're, we're all so busy. We're maxed out on our schedules and we're running from here to there trying to get to the next soccer game and we're grabbing fast food on the way. So we've lost touch with it. We've lost the idea, the power that meals can have and how they can actually bring people together or in many cases through history, tear people apart. 
And we've talked a lot about that over the previous weeks. And so if you want to go back and listen to some of the podcasts, that'll really help you be on the same page. But our focus has been that this practice of eating and drinking, it was not a side point for Jesus. Actually, it was central to everything that he was doing. And so in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, it says, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Everybody say seek. seek. They save. save. Save the lost. To seek and save the lost, this was Jesus' mission. This is why he was here. This is what he was doing in the earth. And then Luke 7, 34, we just read it, says the son of man came eating and drinking. Eating and drinking was Jesus' method. In other words, this is how he was doing the seeking and the saving. So in a culture where people were hostile to him in many cases, in a culture where people wanted to keep Jesus at arm's length, how did Jesus walk people into the kingdom of God? And the answer is one meal at a time. One meal at a time, sitting across the table, welcoming people into the kingdom. So in the series, we've been asking the same question of us. In a post-Christian culture, what does it look like for you and for me to reach out and to walk people into the kingdom of God? How do we do the same thing that Jesus was doing that we're called to when there's hostility? When it's not PC to believe what you believe. When it's generally not acceptable to say what you want to say in many cases. And where most of the time you just walk around like the weird person at work that has all those weird beliefs and nobody quite understands. So to answer that question, we've been looking at different times that Jesus went and sat down at a meal with all sorts of different people who in that culture at that time were considered untouchable. No respectable person and certainly no respectable rabbi would show up and sit at a table with these people. And so this is how Jesus got his reputation. This is why they said, well, he's a drunkard. He's a, he's a glutton. And of course, we know that he wasn't. But today we're looking at the story where Jesus sat down to a meal with a religious leader and an unexpected guest shows up who really doesn't belong there. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7, verse 36. It says, afterward, a Jewish religious leader named Simon asked Jesus to his home for dinner. And Jesus accepted the invitation. I love that. Jesus says, yeah, absolutely, I would love to go. When he went to Simon's house, he took his place at the table. In the neighborhood, there was an immoral woman of the streets, known to all to be a prostitute. When she heard about Jesus being in Simon's house, she took an exquisite flask made from alabaster, filled it with the most expensive perfume, went right into the home of the Jewish religious leader, and knelt at the feet of Jesus in front of all the guests. Broken, and weeping, she covered his feet with the tears that fell from her face. She kept crying and drying his feet with her long hair. Over and over, she kissed Jesus' feet. Then she opened her flask and anointed his feet with her costly perfume as an act of worship. Okay, hold up, everybody. This is a crazy scene. If you've been in church and you've read this story over and over and you kind of read it, oh yeah, lady comes in, cries, wipes his feet with her. You just kind of dismiss it. Stop for a minute. Go to the room. Think about what this looks like. Think about what's actually happened. The scene that this woman is, is creating. Now we don't exactly know what, she, what her life was like and, and translations, this one particularly, the Passion Translation says that she was most likely a sex worker. But just think, it must have taken so much courage for her just to walk in that room. Think about her position and walking into that space. She lives in a male-dominated, patriarchal society. And if you're living the lifestyle that she's living, the one place you do not go is to the Pharisee's house. You don't want to go show up there. And so, uh, so what, what happened here, it, scholars say that it wasn't necessarily that she showed up. Because 
This room was probably open. People knew that Jesus was there. They were hosting a meal. And so people could probably come in. Culture was a little bit different. Privacy is not exactly what it was today. And it's, that's going away. Thanks a lot, Facebook. But whatever. Um, I'm sorry. So, so it wasn't exactly the same. So people probably could have. So the issue was not that she was there. The issue was she didn't stay on the sidelines where she was supposed to. She should have been on the outside. She wasn't supposed to be right in the center. And so some, some scholars argue that this immoral woman, she's just relating to Jesus the only way that she knows how to relate to men. Like this is what she knows how to do. But in that culture, you don't do this. And you never, ever lower your hair in public, ever. And so do you see it? Like she's crying, she's weeping, she's, she's drying his feet with her, with her hair. This is a mess. It's messy. And everybody sitting in the room is like, okay. Uh, I don't know what to do. I feel awkward. I don't know what to do with my hands. Like, I just, I'm not sure what should happen here. It's kind of like when you have Thanksgiving, you know, and all the family comes in and you're sitting there having a nice Thanksgiving dinner and your strange uncle starts going crazy on all of his political beliefs. And you're like, okay, I don't know what to do. Could I have a little more to drink? What's in this drink? Could I get a little more of this? Like, I don't know what to do with this scene. This breaks all the social rules. It breaks all the religious rules, not to mention just plain old etiquette. And so for honest, this situation, if you were there, it would make us feel so uncomfortable. Like, this is Jesus. You don't act this way around Jesus. This is not appropriate behavior around Jesus. There's things you do and things you don't do. And so bring all of those thoughts forward today into our culture. And it might sound something like this. Well, this is church. This is church. You don't do that in church. There's acceptable behavior here. If you're going to be here, there's things you got to do. Like, we're a little more refined than this. And so there's, there's rules. There's etiquette. If you're going to be in church, if you're going to be religious, if you're going to be a Christian, there's things that you have to do. And you, right there, what you're wearing, that's not it. <laughs> it reminds me of this meme that keeps showing up in my feed. Maybe you saw it sometime. I don't know if you can read it from where you are, but it says, maybe you shouldn't wear ripped jeans to church. Maybe you should look up at Jesus and not up and down at my outfit, Carol. <laughs> I love that Thor face, by the way. That's my favorite. You're laughing because this is, this is real to you. Like, you understand this. This makes sense to me. And some people have actually said that to some of you. But Jesus' response to this woman is so much different. Luke 7, verse 39, Simon saw what was happening and he thought, this man can't be a true prophet. If he were really a prophet, he would know what kind of sinful woman is touching him. So you got to see it. Simon, he's checking Jesus out. He's wondering, is this guy for real? Is, this, is he who he says he is? And now because of what's happening, he's saying, nope, he's not. He couldn't possibly be because if he was, he would kick her out. So Jesus says, Simon, I have a word for you. Go ahead, teacher. I want to hear it. He answered. <laughs> no, he doesn't. It's a story about two men who were deeply in debt. One owed the bank $100,000 and the other only owed $10,000. When it was obvious that neither of them would be able to repay their debts, the kind banker graciously wrote off the debts and forgave them all that they owed. So tell me, Simon, which of the two debtors would you be the most thankful? Which one would love the banker most? And Simon answered, well, I suppose it would be the one with the greatest debt forgiven. You're right, Jesus agreed. And then he spoke to, the, to Simon about the woman still weeping at his feet. Don't you see this woman kneeling here? She's doing for me what you didn't bother to do. When I entered your home as your guest, you didn't think about offering me water to wash the dust off my feet. Yet she came into your home and washed my feet with her many tears and dried my feet with her hair. 
You didn't even welcome me into your home with the customary kiss of greeting. But from the moment I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't take the time to anoint my head with fragrant oil, but she anointed my head and feet with the finest perfume. She's been forgiven of all her many sins. Whoa, did you hear that, everybody? She has been forgiven all her many sins. This is why she has shown me such extravagant love. But those who assume they have very little to be forgiven will love me very little. Straight to the heart. Then Jesus said to the woman at his feet, all your sins are forgiven. All the dinner guests said among themselves, who is this one who can even forgive sins? And then Jesus said to the woman, your faith in me has given you life. Now you may leave and walk in the ways of peace. When you read the story, what you tend to remember is everything that this woman did. And that's right. It's good. It's appropriate. We should learn from what she did for Jesus. And we should respond very much like her. But what about Simon? If you look at Simon, what is it that we need to learn from Simon? Like this guy, he's the God lover in the story. He's the church goer, we might say. He's the expert in the law. He's the religious leader. And this guy completely missed it. He missed everything that was happening in the room. And it kind of seems like Jesus would almost let it go. Like you're reading the story and it kind of seems like maybe they would just kind of move on. But it's obvious that Simon, he's thinking something. It's obvious that he's passing judgment on this woman. And actually, I love it because if you read another translation, it says he's just kind of thinking to himself. And so Jesus, in response to his thoughts, tells that story. Oh, this man can't be a prophet. (laughs) In response to his thoughts, he tells him a story. So where did Simon miss it? I think there's a few things, and you can write them down in your notes. For sure, Simon, he didn't see Jesus for who he really is. He didn't see it. He had the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. The Messiah was sitting at his table, and he said, no, this guy couldn't be a prophet, because if he was, he would dismiss this woman. He didn't get it, and he missed out on who Jesus really is and what Jesus was doing. I think he also, he didn't realize how much he had been forgiven. He didn't realize how much he'd been forgiven. This is what Jesus was saying in the story. Those who feel like they've been forgiven very little, they're going to love me very little. And this for sure was Simon. He thinks he's fine. He thinks he's the one in right standing. And he's looking down at this woman who's such an embarrassment, such a mess. Everybody knows her story. Oh, she certainly needs that. Not like me. I'm good, I'm holy, I'm religious, I'm the expert, and he was wrong. Simon was so concerned with religious appearance, so concerned with his own honor, that he disregarded every act of common and thoughtful hospitality. He disregarded every act of common and thoughtful hospitality. This is what Jesus was saying to him. You didn't give me any water for my feet. People, there were no Nikes in those days. People are walking around in sandals and they're traveling everywhere. It's dirty. It's gross. There's a lot of stuff up in there in between those toes. And so it was customary. You come in, you get water to wash. And he says, Simon, you lost sight of radically ordinary hospitality. Everything that we've been talking about over the past several weeks, Simon lost sight of it. And everybody, we're in danger of doing the same thing. We have to remember. Simon missed Jesus. He lost sight of the table. And I think it's so interesting. It kind of highlights the danger that all of us have the potential to fall into if we're not cautious. Even in our pursuit of God, we can miss people. Even in our rapturous, extravagant pursuit of God, 
we can miss out on what God is really doing in the earth. We miss out on people. We can become so religious that we no longer see what moves his heart. We no longer see what he's really passionate about. We see the mess more than we see the people. They walk in and we kind of look at them and go, hmm, oh, I know what you're going through in your family right now. Oh, yeah, I'm not sure if you should be here. Ooh, I know, ooh, I, I know what she's doing. Do you see the way she was worshiping in there? I'm not sure she, she should be worshiping like that. I'm not sure Jesus is paying any attention to her. I'm not, guess what's happening? Simon, that's creeping in. It's creeping in. You're in danger. You're in danger. You're missing out on who Jesus is. You're forgetting about radically ordinary hospitality. We're in danger. Listen, when we read Luke 7, 34, the son of man came eating and drinking, most of us, it's a little hard to understand today in our culture because we read tax collectors and sinners and we don't think that much about it. Like it doesn't bring up the image of the worst of the worst. But to those original hearers in that day, tax collectors and sinners, that's exactly what it was. They were the worst of the worst. So Jesus was regularly hanging out with the worst of the worst. But it doesn't strike us that way. So just do this little thought exercise with me today. Think about it for a second. What would you feel like? What happens to you inside? If you hear a story about Jesus, he's sitting down and he's having lunch with a pedophile. What happens in your heart? What goes on in your mind all of a sudden? You heard about Jesus going over and having dinner with a white nationalist, somebody who marched on Charlottesville. You hear that story. What happens inside? You hear about Jesus sitting down in a cave somewhere in Afghanistan, sitting around a fire, eating with an ISIS terrorist. What happens inside of you? Are you nervous? Do you get anxious? Do you get scared? Do you think, oh, why would he do that? Surely he doesn't want to be there. Surely he wants to be with me. Oh, there it is. We're in danger. But Jesus' mission is to seek and to save the lost. That means everybody, everybody. That means everybody gets included. And that means that it's going to get messy around here. That means it's going to be messy. Why? Because people are messy. Many of you are thinking, well, that's true. They are so messy. <laughs> no, we are messy. We struggle. We have pride. We have arrogance. We have selfishness. People are struggling through sex addiction, alcohol addiction, bondages. There's stuff going on in people. And when those people come in, it's going to be messy. And that kind of messes with our religious sensibility. And if we're really honest, we can easily fall into the same trap that Simon the Pharisee did. This messy, out-of-line prostitute, she interrupted my time with Jesus. And that religious judgment kind of creeps into us. And so I just think it's good for us to turn and face it. To turn and face it square on. How easy it is for us to try to fit God and the church into our religious preferences. It should be like this. It needs to feel like this. I want my God a certain way. I like when he likes me. I'm not sure about all those other people. We want our God a certain way. We want our church to be a certain way. I don't know if I like that song. Wait, is Ross not here today? Why, how, come, how come? I don't know if I like this. Hey, it's getting personal now. Relax. 
Why about the wood paneling? Isn't that a little too hip? I don't know if I really like this. Uh, we want it our way. We want people to be a certain way. You need to act a certain way. You need to be a certain thing. And we lose touch with God's welcome that's extended to everybody to come to his table. And I think it's easy for us to do. So, so let me explain it for just a little bit. I, you know, we've been talking about in this series how from Jesus all the way through to the Apostle Paul, the followers of Jesus, they were eating and drinking like a family in a home at a table. And so the New Testament, it tells the story of how the church grew, Right? It's a story about how the church grows from like 12 people sitting around a table with Jesus, spilling out into the streets of Jerusalem, growing and, and eventually going through the Roman Empire to today, the historic global movement, the 2 billion people alive breathing in the world right now today that you're a part of, which is awesome. But the New Testament really just tells the story of the first two decades. That's all we really have. And so people much smarter than me, they tell that story about how the church grew and has, has shifted in different ways. And one of the ways they do that is through the lens of architecture. Architecture? Yes, architecture. Some of you are like, oh, okay. This, this sounds like school. I'm checking out. Stay with me for a second because we're going to get somewhere. So if you look at those stages of history, there's basically four or so major stages. We're going to hit four here today really quickly. And the first stage was the home. Like it started in the home. For hundreds of years, followers of Jesus, they didn't build any buildings. They didn't have the money to. In fact, their religion is illegal, so they're running from the government. And so what are they going to do? They're going to meet together in homes. And so the center of gravity for the church at its inception is the table. This is the center of gravity. This is where everything is happening, centered around a meal, the meal of Christ himself. Everybody's invited to it. The table is the center of gravity. So in spite of the laws, Christianity grows and spreads throughout the Roman Empire and churches are growing. And so paganism in some ways is starting to die out. And so some of the churches, they start moving into the defunct temples of like Apollo and Zeus and Aphrodite. These and these temples, they're basically like octagon shaped homes. And so they move in there and still the center of gravity is the table. So when Christianity is legalized around the fourth century, spreads out to the edge of the Roman Empire, the churches started building the cathedrals. It's a blank for you. They move to the cathedrals and they've got different styles through different periods. Like I've got some examples you may recognize. Like there's the Romanesque period here. Some of you may recognize that. There's the Gothic period that happens. And you might recognize in Notre Dame, which had the, the fire here this past year. So sad. You might recognize the Baroque style from Italy. These different temples, these different cathedrals they start meeting in. Almost all of them built like a cross. So when you look down over the top of them, they're shaped like a cross. And in the middle there of that cross is the altar. Now, if you've been into any of these cathedrals in Europe, you've seen they're like made in such a way that sound kind of bounces off the walls. And so people would go and they'd, 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 they'd jump in and hear what was going on, but they couldn't understand anything. So it was okay because mass was in Latin for hundreds of years. So almost nobody knew how to speak that language. So, so teaching instruction was not a big part of the church during this time. But the center of gravity, it moved from the table to the altar. It moves from the table to the altar. And during that shift away from the table, the meal, it devolves a little bit into a, from a meal into a drink of wine and a little bite of bread. So the 16th century, out of the Protestant Reformation, the church kind of has its return to the Bible. Nobody's got their own Bibles. This is before the printing press. So if you want to hear the scriptures, you've got to go to church. You've got to go show up. Uh, so the architecture started to evolve again to fit that. So move ahead and you end up with the colonial box. 
kind of looks like this. You might recognize some of these. The colonial box doesn't look like that bread right there. It's going to look like the picture showing up here in a second. The colonial box is just kind of a, essentially it's a preaching box. Like that's what it was made for. We'll kind of create a square box, put the guy in the center, and we're going to preach at you. This is my kind of church. You know what I'm saying? Just kidding. It's just made for preaching. So whether you're on the East Coast in a really nice Episcopalian church or you're in a small country church somewhere out in Pennsylvania, these colonial style churches, they're preaching boxes. And so the center of gravity, it moves again. It moves from the altar to the pulpit. The center of gravity in this stage becomes the pulpit. And then around the turn of the last century, the rise of entertainment and radio and TV and film and urbanization and cities kind of growing and people going out and looking for stuff to do, music starts paying, playing a larger role in the life of the church. Now, obviously worship by singing, it's always been around even since before the time of Jesus. But, but the style of singing with like pipe organs and big choirs, you guys just had a choir here recently, right? That's awesome. Way to go. This kind of style, it's not really, it wasn't done before that stage. And so we look at that and kind of go, oh, that's old school. Some of you saw that on that Sunday morning. You were like, no, I remember the days fondly. And we look at it and we go, oh, that's old school. But in the history of the church, this is relatively new. It wasn't always done in that way. So in addition to all these cultural changes that are happening, Protestants, they start to spend a little more money on church buildings, which brings about the fourth building style, which is the theater. The theater style. Not a literal theater like the one that I meet in every single Sunday down in Kyle, but... But still that same style where there's an elevated stage and, and the guy's standing up there and there's teams of people leading in worship and it's all created so that you can hear and see it's created for worship and sound and music and screens and all that stuff. The center of gravity becomes the stage and that's still the dominant style today. I see it on your face. You're like, dude, I'm bored. What's the point? The point is there are things that we do in modern church today that we just assume are normal. Like this theater style here. Hundreds of people facing a stage and listening to a preacher. This is normal. This is church. This is how it needs to be. But this wasn't always normal. Now, I'm not trying to moralize any of those stages. I'm not trying to elevate one over the other. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, it's telling, isn't it? That the original architecture of the church, at least until the fourth century, and far beyond that in parts of Europe, and still today in places like China and other places where the gospel is illegal, the original architecture of the church was a table. It was a table in a home. And that says something about what church is at its core and what it has to remain I'm not moralizing any of those stages. I'm just trying to get us to understand that no matter what changes, because methods do change through time. The message never changes. The methods do change from time to time. And even as the methods change, we cannot lose sight of the fact that the original core, the original architecture, the original point is Jesus at the table. Because the moment that we lose sight of that, we start becoming like Simon. The moment, the moment that we lose sight of that, oh, I want church this way. Oh, I, want it, I like it that way. That's just consumer Christianity. We're not interested in any of that. 
or these people belong, and I can be here, but I'm not sure about them. We start to be in danger. Everybody is welcome to the table. So this is why Paul writes, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty three. He says, and he's addressing the church. He says, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, when you come together to eat, he's talking about their Sunday gathering. He's talking about their church service. And he says, when you come to eat, it's not that they had the main event and then they all to get together for a potluck. Or if you're a Christian, a pot blessing. We don't believe in luck. I was up late. I'm sorry. At a meal before or after, the meal was the main event. The meal was the thing. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, when you come together to sing. When you come together to hear Pastor Brent talk to you. He doesn't say all those things. He says, when you come together to eat. And actually, those original followers of Jesus, they had a name for this gathering, and it was called the Love Feast. How incredibly Austin-y and 60s and hippie cool is that? Like, it's amazing. We need to bring it back. Are you going to the 930 Love Feast or the 1130 Love Feast? I don't... In the original Greek, it's the agape feast. And so Tertullian, he's a bishop in the second century, and he describes all of it. I'm not going to read all of how he describes it, but it's just amazing how powerful and how simple it was. He says, you get together, you pray, you eat a meal, and then you each stand up in turn and you sing a song. We are totally doing this next week, by the way. Okay, so you just, you get ready. One by one, we're just gonna go around the room. Do you like Hillsong? Are you more of a Bethel kind of person? Or they actually said, you can just sing an original. But if you watch The Voice for American Idol, you know singing an original is not a good idea. My point is this. The other stuff happened during that love feast. We've got, there's writings about prophecy and, and healings and teaching and all of that. But my point is this. The love feast was the church. The love feast was the church. So what does it say about our modern day church services where we call it a service as if it's the pastor's responsibility to pass out religious goods and services to the religious consumers rather than viewing this as a love feast where we all come together. We all have a part to play. We're all participating around the table together. And guess what? Nobody gets left out. Everybody gets to come. Everybody's invited. Central to our apprenticeship to Jesus is eating and drinking with other apprentices of Jesus and doing life together and inviting other people into it. Yes, even the untouchables. Not just coming to a service, not just spectating. Why don't you guys come back on up and we're gonna close out our time together. Over the past millennia, it would seem that we've kind of lost sight a little bit of those very simple practices. We've got all this cool stuff We've got all this technology. We've got new high-def screens, which kind of scared me the way I looked at myself on there today. But we've got these high-definition screens. We've got amazing music. We have impressive church buildings. Or if you go to one chapel, we have semi-impressive church buildings. And <laughs> you've got extraordinary preaching. And even with all of that stuff that we have in church today, we've continued to slowly drift away from God in our society. So Leonard Sweet, in his book, From Table to Tablet, he says this. Listen, please. He says, an untabled faith is an unstable faith. 
a neglect of the table in our churches gets echoed in our families and communities, and we're watching the breakdown. An untabled faith is an unstable faith, and I think it's true. I think in many ways we've kind of drifted away. So many people, including some of us today, we have a, a faith that's become untabled. We lost sight of the goal. We lost sight of the, the through line of the gospel. And we're in danger, just like Simon. We become a little too religious. We show up, I'm doing my religious duty for the day, and I'm going to check off my box for Sunday. And so I'm just coming, I'm going to spectate at the service. Pastor, better do a good job today. I need a little something. You're missing the point, man. You don't show up saying, I need a little something. You show up saying, I got a little something. I want to give it away in this love feast. It's not Ross's job. He's the leader. He's leading us. He's got vision that God has given him, and we're following that vision. But it's not his job on a Sunday morning to take care of all of your needs. We are the church. We are. You are. We show up on a Sunday morning. We don't spectate. We come to participate. We're in danger of losing sight of who Jesus really is. Just thinking about how I want this. I wish we stopped singing that song. We're singing it too many weeks in a row, and I... I feel like it's at the table has been going on for the past three years. Like, when are we going to have a new series? And it's the last one today. Just relax. Worse yet, we don't realize or we forget how much we've actually been forgiven. We see people's mess before we see the mess of our own life, and we forget that I've been forgiven so much. God's been so good to me. We lose touch with that, we're in danger. We start looking down at other people and elevating ourselves, and that's not what we should do. And then we just, when we get in that space, we disregard radically ordinary hospitality. We no longer see what Jesus wants to do. But in contrast to that, this woman, she shows up to the party, and she goes in. She goes in. She doesn't lose any of this. She doesn't have religious judgmentalism in her life. When we do, we lose that same innocence that she had, the purity with which she approached Jesus, the unadulterated abandonment of the thing. And so she just comes in before Jesus just like she is in all of her mess. She knows it, and she just comes in. and She walks in carrying everything, knowing who she is, knowing that she shouldn't even be there. And she gets caught up in his presence. He takes her in. You just want to sit there at his feet. You just never want to leave. This is the goal for us. Just close your eyes for a minute. We're going to prepare to come to the Lord's table here. I just want to ask you two questions. And I just want you to ask the Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me today? Do you see yourself like the woman? With all of her mess? She was a mess. Everybody knew it. There's no denying it. Do you see yourself like her? I'm a mess. I can't come to the table. I'm not welcome. I'm not invited. I know what I did last night. I know what I'm going through. I know what's happening. You don't have to stay there. Jesus embraced this woman with all of her mess. And in fact, in one account that possibly parallels this, he says, wherever the gospel is told, what this woman has done will be told along with that story. 
you can come with your mess in innocence to Jesus. Or maybe today you see yourself like the religious leader who totally missed it. He totally misses it. His poor hospitality was almost as much of a social blunder as this woman's actions. Why is she here? Why are we doing things like this? That's not what church is supposed to be. This is what church is supposed to be. Even if that's you today, you too are welcome. Because I want you to see that both of these people were broken. Both of them had problems and both of them were welcome to the table with Jesus. And both had opportunity to receive healing at the table with him. And the same thing is true for you and me today. And just like Jesus did on that night, he accepts both of us and God's kingdom shows up. Social convention gets thrown out the window. Forgiveness and love sets new standards, raises new expectations in our lives. Human beings now appear, not as society would construct them, but instead as God sees them. So the question for us is, do we see people for who they have been or what God can make them? Do we see people for who they have been or what God can make them? We don't know how Simon responded, but we know how the woman responded. And today it's your choice. So regardless of whether you're on the side of the woman or on the side of Simon, right there in your seat, I just want you to respond and just say, Jesus, I don't want this anymore. I don't want this religious fundamentalism. I don't, I don't want this religiosity, this judgment in me. I confess that to you and I repent. God, forgive me. Or if your life is in shambles, in shreds today, God can pick up those pieces, put them back together, one whole clean slate. That's what he does. And so you just say, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me for the life that I've lived. I bring all of my mess. I lay it down in your feet and I need you. Please forgive me for my sins. And the best way I know how, I'm giving my life to you today. In Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, you can learn about groups, teams, and more at onechapel.com welcome. You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're always invited to services every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11.30. See you next time.